John 10, 1 through 10. Truly, truly I say to you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that person is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Um, we are in a series in which we're looking at a number of statements that Jesus made in the Gospel of John. They're called the I Am Statements. Jesus said things like, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world. Uh, every human being has certain basic needs or core longings, and uh, Jesus says that, uh, that he came to fulfill those needs and those longings, so that when he says, I am the bread of life, he's satisfying our need for satisfaction. Or when he says, I am the light of the world, he's satisfying our longing for truth. So the statement that we're looking at this morning is, um, is here in this passage where Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Now, what does that mean? Well, to help us start thinking about this, I want to ask you a question. What kind of world do you want to live in? And this is an opportunity for you to let your imagination roam. Um, what does that world look like? If we were all to draw a picture or, or write down a list, I'm guessing our ideal worlds might all look just a little bit different, but they'd also have some pretty basic things in common. I think it's safe to say that we all want to live in a world uh, where there's no poverty or hunger, a world where there's no violence or war, where there's no hatred, racism, or bigotry, a, war, a world where there's no uh, sickness or death, where there's no sadness or loneliness or unhappiness, no mean people. We all want to live in a world of love and peace, of respect and dignity, a world where everyone and everything is totally flourishing. Um, you know, it's kind of like the end of Lord of the Rings when Sam and Frodo, the little hobbits, destroy the one ring of all power in Mount Doom. The world is falling apart. And, and Sam uh, passes out, but then he wakes up and it's morning and the sun is shining and he sees Gandalf the wizard and he says, Gandalf, 
I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? We all want to live in a world in which everything sad comes untrue. That's the world we want to live in. And people have different names or words they use to describe that world. Some people call that paradise. Uh, A lot of times um, people refer to this ideal world as utopia. In fact, um, that's the word I used for the title of the sermon this morning. And the reason is because that's a word that at least has some meaning uh, for most of us in this world. Um, And it's a word that gets us close to what Jesus is talking about here. But it's not actually the best word. Some of you might be thinking, okay, I'll bite. What is the best word? Well, it's a word we're all familiar with. In fact, it's one of the most common words in the Bible. As soon as I say it, you're all going to say, oh, I've heard of that. But if you ask people to define it, even Christians, a lot of people would draw a blank. The word that, or really it's a phrase, that best describes the the kind of world we all want to live in, the kind of world that Jesus is talking about here, is the kingdom, or really the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? You see, that's why I didn't use it for the title of the sermon. Because most people... Uh, you know, that's a word or a phrase that really for many people it either means nothing or it means the wrong thing. But unless we understand what Jesus is talking about here when, um, when he says, I am the door, unless we understand the kingdom, we will not understand what Jesus is talking about when he says, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus is talking about the world we all want to live in. So, um, whether we realize it or not, he's talking about the kingdom of God. So let's learn three things from this image of the door about the kingdom of God. We're going to see the story of the kingdom. We're going to see the distortion of the kingdom. And lastly, we're going to see the true way into the kingdom. Okay? The story, the distortion, and the true way into the kingdom. First, um, the story of the kingdom. Now, this passage takes place in the middle of a controversy that was going on, and it begins back in chapter 9 of John's gospel. The controversy was with these religious leaders, and the, the big controversy was all about who is Jesus? Who is he the Messiah or not? And so in, it's in the setting of that controversy that Jesus tells this story about shepherds and sheep. Now, in the Bible, a shepherd and his sheep was one of the primary ways of talking about a king and his people. So, for instance, um, you remember Moses? Uh, Moses was a shepherd. And God called Moses to, uh, to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And you remember who Moses' successor was? In Numbers 27, uh, when Moses is getting ready to retire, as it were, uh, God calls Joshua to take his place. And in Numbers 27, it, it says that Joshua is going to, um, to lead them out and bring them in so that people may not be as sheep without a shepherd. One of the most consistent images the Bible uses to talk about a king is as a shepherd. So, for instance, um, Ezekiel 34 Um, The whole chapter, and I encourage you to read it sometime this week, it's pretty amazing. The whole chapter is all about God denouncing the the bad shepherds who are oppressing the sheep of Israel. So God says, I am going to be the one who's going to go out and search for my sheep, and I am going to bring them back, and I am going to feed them, and I am going to care for them. And the way I'm going to do that is by raising up another king, a descendant of the great shepherd king David. He's going to feed the sheep, and he's going to be 
their shepherd. When Jesus tells this story, he's saying, I'm the king that God promised to send. And, and really that brings us back to something we were talking about a few weeks ago. We said the main storyline of the whole Bible from beginning to end is all about God's universal mission to renew the world. God's vision is not that one day he's going to destroy this world and carry us away to some disembodied heaven. I know that's a popular idea. It, it is ingrained into us to think of us um, being carried away to some disembodied heaven and God's just going to destroy the world. But that is not God's vision. That is not what the Bible says. God's vision is not that one day he's going to destroy this world. It's that one day he's going to renew this world. Remember our question at the beginning, what kind of world do you want to live in? The, the main storyline of the whole Bible from beginning to end is all about God's promise that one day he's going to make this world the kind of world that we all want to live in. And the way he's going to do that is through a king. So for hundreds of years, Jewish people, up until the time of Jesus, they had been waiting and hoping and longing and praying and yearning for the king who was going to come and set up the kingdom. That's what they were waiting for. Now, um, that's the kingdom of God. It's the story of God's promise to renew the world through a king. The kingdom of God is the story of God's promise to renew the world through a king. That's what it is. And that's what the Jewish people were waiting for. When Jesus comes into um, history and he starts telling this story about shepherds and sheep, what he's really saying is, I'm the king. I'm the king who's come to renew the world. So for instance, um, at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, um, when Jesus begins his public ministry, what are the very first words out of his mouth? The beginning of Jesus' gospel proclamation was, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jewish people heard him say that, that, there would have been all kinds of bells going off in their mind. They would have, ding, 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 ding. They would have been saying, finally the king has come to renew the world, the king we've been waiting for. Finally, it's going to be the kind of world that we all want to live in. They, they were very familiar with this story of the kingdom. So um, when they heard Jesus say that, they would have known that the time was fulfilled, the kingdom was hand. That was the story, that was the vision of the world that shaped their lives and shaped their expectation. They were waiting for a king to come and renew the world. Now, before we move on, we have to see how radical this was. Up until Jesus entered history, the, every major civilization in the, uh, in the world at this time in history saw the world as a never-ending cycle. The world and life and all the suffering of life was seen as really like a big wheel that just went around and around and around. It was kind of like stuck on auto-repeat. It was a wheel that went around and around forever. You couldn't change it. The best you could do, the best you could hope, would be to escape the wheel, the never-ending cycle. So, for instance, in Hinduism, they teach something called moksha. And moksha is liberation from the never-ending cycle of life, death, and rebirth, and suffering. Or in Buddhism, they teach something called nirvana. Nirvana is, um, is when your experience, really it's an illusion of being a unique individual, is literally blown out. 
you're liberated from the never-ending cycle of life, death, and rebirth, okay? The ancient world saw history as a never-ending cycle, and the goal was to escape. You couldn't change it. The best you could hope for was to escape it. Now, that's not the way we think about the world, is it? We, when we look at the world, when we think about the world, we don't say history is a never-ending cycle. The goal is to escape. We say, no, no, history is a story, and the goal is to progress. That's the way we think about the world. Now, why is it? For instance, why is it that being on the right side of history, why is that a thing? It's because we live in a world in which the main storyline, the main idea is this idea that history is a story that's all about making progress towards an ideal world. So we say things like, we have to make the world a better place. We have to fix things, change things, heal things, restore things. We have to make the world a paradise, make it a utopia. Now, why do we believe that story? It's because 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came on the scene and he started saying, the kingdom of God is at hand and I'm the king that God promised to renew the world. Up until that time in history, the only people that believed that was this obscure, marginalized, oppressed little tribe of people known as the Jews and their obscure God known as Yahweh, which literally means I am. They were the only people that believed that story, that history is a story that's about making progress. But when Jesus came into the world, the story went viral. It transformed the way the ancient world saw the world. So um, in Western culture, this idea that history is a story that's all about making progress toward an ideal world, we have that vision, we have that story because of Jesus Christ, because Jesus came saying, I'm the king who's come to renew the world. Friends, the the kingdom of God is the story of God's promise to renew the world through a king. It's not about escaping the world. It's about renewing the world. And that leads to our second point. We've just seen the story of the kingdom, but next we need to see the distortion of the kingdom. Because now that we understand that, we're actually in a position to understand what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Jesus is contrasting two big things here. Uh, First, he's contrasting a good shepherd with what he calls thieves and robbers. So you notice in verse 10, it says, um, they come only to steal, kill, and destroy. And we'll get back to that. But the other big contrast Jesus is making is between two different ways um, in and out of the sheepfold. The sheepfold was an enclosed space that would have had one door or gate leading in and out of the sheepfold. And Jesus is saying that there's only one genuine way into the sheep. And he's also saying that there's only one genuine way for the sheep to get out and find, as he says in verse 9, pasture. Or in verse 10, he says to find abundant life. You know what that is? That's the world we all want to live in. That's the kingdom. And Jesus is saying there's only one genuine way to find the kingdom. So, so what are these thieves and robbers? What are they doing? He's warning us about them. Well, notice how Jesus puts it in verse 1. He says they try to climb in. Notice how he puts it? Another way. Another way. When Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep, he's saying, I am the only way to find the kingdom. 
I'm the only way to find the abundant life. I'm the only way to find the kind of world that we all want to live in. All these thieves and robbers, what are they? They're people or leaders or philosophies or ideologies that try to tell us about another way to find the kingdom. So for instance, in Jesus' day, they were looking for the kingdom of God. They were waiting for a king who was going to come and set up the kingdom, the renewal of the world. But at that point in their history, um, Jewish people were under Roman occupation. They were oppressed. They were victimized. And so what they were looking for was a king who was going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire by sword. They were still looking for the kingdom, but they were trying to find the kingdom in another way. Their vision had been shrunk down to a political vision, a military vision, a military conquest that was going to bring the kingdom by force. And, and, and so Jesus is saying, look, there are all kinds of alternative ways, all kinds of alternative stories of the kingdom. And every single one of them wants to say to you, oh, no, 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 no. You don't need Jesus. Let me tell you about the real way to find the kingdom. Jesus calls them thieves and robbers, and he says they only come to steal, kill, and destroy. In other words, if you look for any other way to find the kingdom other than Jesus, it will only lead to death and destruction. That's what Jesus is saying here. So let's bring it into our world, okay? What are the other ways that, that we would seek to find the kingdom here in Western culture because that's the culture we live in? Well, there are lots of other ways that are presented to us, but let me mention one, big one. Um, and, and I mentioned this one for three reasons. First, because it's the most seductive. Secondly, because it's the hardest to see and therefore the most dangerous. And lastly, because it's one that affects all of us, both non-Christians and Christians. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the secular story of the kingdom. Um, as I mentioned just a bit ago, before Jesus showed up in the ancient world, um, the, the whole ancient world, every major civilization, Greece, India, Asia, the whole ancient world saw this world as a never-ending cycle. But when Jesus showed up, he started talking about the kingdom of God, and it changed the world to this story that history is actually a story that's all about making progress to an ideal world. And all of a sudden, the idea that history is a story, that, that idea went viral throughout the ancient world. It changed the course of history. So for the next 1,500 years, the story of the kingdom was an explicitly Christian story. But then over the last 500 years of history, there were another series of radical shifts in society to where we now have what we could call the modern, scientific, secular story of the world. Now, would you be curious to know what some of those radical shifts were? Let me mention five of them really briefly. Um, we're going to cover 500 years of history in two minutes. <laughs> and I understand this is overly... This is simplifying things, but here's five of the biggest ones. First, you had Isaac Newton and the scientific revolution. The ancient world um, believed that, that God created all things for a purpose. Purpose was the category by which we viewed the world. Modern science got rid of the category of purpose and said that everything in the universe is now explained by the laws of cause and effect. There's no more purpose. Secondly, um, the modern secular worldview, it retained this Christian idea that, that every human being is a unique individual 
with inherent worth and dignity, but because we got rid of the idea of purpose, we said that every human being now is free to define purpose for themselves. If there's no God to tell you what you're made for, you tell you what you're made for. No one else can tell you that. So every human being has radical freedom to, to find happiness that they define for themselves. That idea now is, is the value that is exalted above every other value in our world. All right, third, you had a guy named John Locke, very famous philosopher. If you're a fan of the TV show Lost, that philosopher actually had a big impact on that TV show. John Locke said a number of things, but one of the things he's most famous for was he said that we need to create a way for both science and faith to coexist in the world. And he said the way we do that is we, we just give them both their own sphere. So he said, look, if you want to believe in God, if that works for you, that's great, but you should keep that private, keep that in your own individual life, and don't, we don't bring that into our public, social, and political life together. So now we have in our society the idea that, that faith is all about our individual experience of personal salvation, but we don't bring that into public. It's, it's all about our personal relationship with God. Um, so first, scientific revolution, no purpose. Second, individual freedom to determine happiness for yourself. Third, um, John Locke and the privatization of religion. Fourth, you had Adam Smith. Adam Smith lived during the American Revolution, and he's primarily known as being one of the chief architects of what we would call today our free market economy. And, and as a result of that, um, happiness for, for much of the world is now defined in terms of economic prosperity economic prosperity as a result of free market capitalism. And lastly, there was one more idea that the secular story kept from the Christian story. And it has had a, a, a profound impact on uh, the way we experience and live in our current cultural moment. And I think you can probably guess what it is. It's the idea of progress. It's the idea of progress, that it's possible to make the world a better place, that it's possible, and actually we have a moral obligation to make this world the kind of world that we know it ought to be. Now, put all of those things together. No purpose, individual freedom to define happiness for yourself, the privatization of religion, um, free market capitalism, and all of that in the service of this idea we call progress. You put all of those things together, and what do you have? Mark Sayers is a pastor and an author and a cultural commentator in Australia. Really, the man is a, a, a savant when it comes to cultural analysis. He puts this perfectly. He says, when you put all of these things together, what you have is this. We want the kingdom, but without a king. The, the modern secular story is an alternative salvation story that promises you a kingdom without having to bow down to a king. So, for instance, in, in our world today, in our culture, the kingdom that we're searching for is no longer the kingdom of God. It's an alternative kingdom. But what is that kingdom? One of the best books I read over the past year was a book called Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen. And don't be fooled by the title. Um, liberalism refers to a political philosophy that is grounded in pursuing ideals like liberty and equality. It includes both progressives and conservatives, okay? In this book, um, Patrick Deneen, he says, if you look at, at contemporary American politics, 
it would be easy to think that, that conservatives and progressives are total polar opposites. In reality, he says, both of them are, are, are captured by the same vision. What is that vision? They're both working for the same vision. What is that vision? It's radical individual freedom to define happiness for yourself, to pursue a happiness that you define by means of science, technology, economics, and politics, and, and most often in pursuit of either economic liberation or sexual liberation, or very often both. So here's the question. How's that working out for us? I mentioned a few weeks ago that rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide are rising dramatically, and it's a global phenomenon. But even just here in America, look at what's going on in our country. Our, our political system is fractured. Um, the poverty gap is widening. Technology is simultaneously wonderful and soul-sucking. Um, consumerism and materialism have created a society of addicts. Uh, institutional trust is at an all-time low, whether it's in Washington, D.C., or Wall Street, or Hollywood, or Silicon Valley, or the church. Um, we look to science to solve all of the problems that science made possible. People are hungry, they're desperate for meaning in this world, but nobody has any idea where to find it. We're filled with restlessness, anxiety, lassitude, boredom, and hopelessness. People are desperate for meaning in this world, and, and we don't know where to find it. It feels like the world is falling apart. And even if you believe in God and go to church, listen, American Christianity is just as captive to this alternative kingdom story. The American Christianity is just as captive to individualism, consumerism, materialism, the idolatry of politics, and the privatization of religion to this individual salvation narrative, just as captive. Now, listen, you know, here's the deal. Every kingdom demands your allegiance. Every kingdom demands your wholehearted allegiance. If you are pursuing a vision of some alternative kingdom, that means that you cannot do that without rejecting Jesus and his kingdom. It's impossible. Friends, modern secular society, what we've tried to do is, is, is create an alternative Garden of Eden. And the fruit, listen, it looks so good. But every time we take a bite, it's filled with worms, isn't it? Everything is falling apart. And, and I want to encourage you this morning. Jesus says the thieves and the robbers, they come only to steal, kill, and destroy. If we try to seek an alternative kingdom apart from the king, it's going to fall apart. It can only destroy us. It can only lead to corrosion in our souls and in our society. Have I painted a bleak enough picture for you yet? Here's why this is so hopeful. You know what the definition of insanity is? trying the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If our solution to the problems of society, to the problems of the world, is to double down on the economic policies, the political policies, all the things that have gotten us to the place we're at, if our solution is to double down on those things, we're still chasing an alternative kingdom. It's insanity. It can never lead to the world we want to live in. That means that if you're feeling hopeless, if you're feeling meaninglessness in this world, if you're feeling in, in despair about the state of our world, about the state of our society today, that's actually a very hopeful place to be because 
Every other system is going to fail except the one kingdom, the one system that is guaranteed to, to reign and to triumph, and that's the kingdom of Jesus. If you're feeling hopeless about the world today, that means you might actually be in a place where you're willing to give your allegiance to Jesus in the kingdom that he brings, and he will bring it. And that leads us to our last point. We've seen the story of the kingdom, the distortion of the kingdom, but lastly, the true way into the kingdom. What is that way? What does that look like? It's really very simple. In verses three and four, Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice, that's the good shepherd, and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Friends, the way to find the true kingdom is to follow the king. And the way you know the true king is to look at the way he brings the kingdom. Not by taking up power, but by laying it down. Not by chasing his own individual happiness, but by sacrificing his happiness for the sake of others. Where do we see Jesus doing that? Well, really, his whole life is a picture of that, but we see it most potently in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And the night before he was crucified, Jesus Christ went to this garden called Gethsemane, and, and he prayed to God. He said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass before me. Now, the cup was the cup of God's wrath on all human rebellion. In other words, all of our attempts to, to get the kingdom without a king, all of those attempts, all they can do is lead to death and destruction in this world. The cup of God's wrath is his judgment on all of human rebellion. We know instinctively that evil demands justice. The cup is God's justice. But there's also Jesus in this picture because Jesus is the true king, the only one who ever obeyed the Father perfectly, who honored the Father perfectly, who served the Father perfectly, the only king and therefore the only one that rightly is heir of the kingdom of God. Here's Jesus, and yet he's facing the cup that we deserve. And in essence, God, Jesus is saying to God, Father, isn't there another way? Isn't there another way? And we don't, we're never told if Jesus heard a reply. But when we behold Jesus hanging on the cross, we know what the response of the Father was. God said, my son, my one and only son, my beloved son, there is no other way. Only if you give up your life can they have life. Only if you sacrifice your happiness can they have happiness. Only if you are cast out of the kingdom can they be welcomed into the kingdom. Friends, if you see Jesus doing that for you, doing that for all of us, then, then what does that look like in our lives together as we follow this king? Let me offer you just a couple of thoughts about this as we close our time together. And the first is this. Following King Jesus means following him into the laying down of power. Not taking up power, laying down power. It really means following him into self-sacrifice. I'm going to say something, um, and I'm going to qualify it before I say it, but I still need to say it. Um, here's the qualification. I understand that, that our situation in modern society is very unique in the history of the world. That means that, yes, we have rights as citizens of the country that we live in. And yes, um, our rights are also bound up with the rights of other people in our society. And so I understand our very rightful concerns over things like, for instance, religious liberty in our country. But remember the system we live in. 
Our system is founded on the, on the idea of maximum liberation for every human individual, that we would be freed from any external restraint so that we could pursue happiness for ourselves. That's the vision, the political system, the social system that we live in. The story, that story is so embedded in us, so ingrained in us, that the idea that we might voluntarily limit some of our freedoms, limit some of our uh, liberty, is, it just sounds crazy to do something like that. But friends, Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so that we could be free to pursue individual happiness. He died on the cross to free us from cultural idols. So with that in mind, here's what I want to say. And listen, I'm willing to be wrong about this. I've been thinking about this for years, but the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that as modern American 21st century Christians, uh, we need to be far more comfortable with far less power. We need to be far more comfortable with far less power. I, you know, for instance, the early church had zero cultural power, zero political power, zero military power. They changed the world. The less power they had, the more they changed the world. Our brothers and sisters in China right now, in the Chinese church, have zero political power. They are being persecuted right now, and yet Christianity is exploding in China. We need to be far more comfortable with far less power. We far more willing to, to be okay with the loss of some liberty if it means that the world can see a witness to a different kind of kingdom that it's not seeing in the rest of the world. That's the first thing. Following the king means being willing to lay down power. But secondly, following King Jesus means that we can work for meaningful change because we know that ultimate change is something that only Jesus does. We can work in this world for meaningful change because we know that ultimate change belongs to Jesus only. So for instance, if you know that we cannot bring the kingdom, but Jesus can and will, that does two things for you. First, that frees you from being triumphalistic and naive about our power to change the world. That, that really, it frees you from arrogance. It frees you from thinking that, that we have the power to change the world. It frees you from making an absolute out of political parties or political systems or political candidates. It frees you from making an idol out of those things. It, it frees you from thinking that those are the ways that we're gonna bring the kingdom into the world. If we're still thinking that, then we're still captive to, to a system that is a story of an alternative salvation, an alternative kingdom that doesn't have the power to bring it, we can be free from the triumphalistic, arrogant, naive attitudes that think we are gonna change the world. But secondly, if you know that we can't bring the kingdom, but Jesus can and will, that means we're also freed from hopelessness and despair. So that if the world is falling apart, we don't have to freak out. And the world is falling apart. It, it, news flash for you. It's been falling apart for quite some time. You know, the last whatever many years. You know, Rome is in the dustbin of history right now. And I guarantee you, people were freaking out when Rome was falling. We don't even, it's not even on our radar. It happened 1,500 years ago. We don't have to freak out if, the society, if it looks like the world is falling apart. Because every civilization, every system, every political society is going to end up in the dustbins of history. That means that, that we don't have to freak out if our political party 
doesn't win or if our candidate doesn't win. We don't have to worry about that because we don't have to sink into despair and hopelessness because King Jesus is going to bring a kingdom, a radically different kingdom than the kingdom we think about when we think about the world, the kind of world that we want to live in. Friends, you can work for meaningful change in this world because you know that only Jesus brings ultimate change. When we're freed from the burden and the responsibility of being the ones to bring about ultimate change in this world, that means you can work for meaningful change without being either arrogant, triumphalistic, and naive, or without sinking into hopelessness and despair when it doesn't work out the way you don't think it's going to. So for instance, that means that Christians should be working for the well-being, for the common good of this world. We should be working for the environment. We should be working for human rights. We, we have better reasons to do that than, than, than anybody else in the world. We should be working for racial justice, economic justice, for better solutions to the world's problems. But we do so because we know that we're not the ones that are going to change the world. That's not our job. It's Jesus' job. So our job as the church is to bear witness to the kingdom that's coming. We do that through our words, public proclamation of the gospel, not being forced into some private little corner that says religion is a private thing. This is public truth. This is the renewal of the world. This is not some private story. If it works for you, great. You know, pick one that works for you like a health club plan. It doesn't really matter. No, nothing matters more than this. So we proclaim, we bear witness to the kingdom with our words in society, but we also bear witness to the kingdom with the actions, our actions in this world, that everything we do points to the kingdom to come. In the story, uh, the controversy in which this parable takes place. Jesus had just healed a man who was born blind. He was pointing to the kingdom that's coming. So our actions point to the kingdom. Our actions bear witness to the kingdom, to, the, to, a, to a world where, where blind people will see, where deaf people will hear, where lame people will walk, where, where lonely people are, are welcomed in, where poor people are feasted, where, where the dead find new life, literally, is that the kind of world you want to live in? Do you believe that world is possible? Follow this king and find that world. Let's pray.